the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Welcome back to uh, a uh, new series called The Expose in the Midst with uh, our brother Mel. And joining me here in studio also for his, uh, uh, you know, interaction uh, with this, uh, you know, new discoveries or at least new research information that brother Mel is sharing with us about a number of Islamic myths. And he is giving us uh, possible origins for where many of those uh, may have uh, come from or at least a tie uh, to uh, the Zoroastrian religion that could have been responsible to reshape what we call early Islamic practices. Today, we're going to talk about a mythical story known as Al-Isra or Mi'raj, where uh, a mention of a mythical animal known as Al-Buraq, who took Muhammad from Mecca to Jerusalem or to the far mosque, Al-Aqsa Mosque, where he prayed, and then this uh, this mythical also uh, animal took him all the way to heaven, Al-Mi'raj, basically. So we are going to ask Brother Mel now to give us an idea about the origin of this myth and the name. Mel, welcome back again. Thank you so much for uh, this wonderful and fascinating research indeed. Well, it's great to be back. I think the key thing here with the Burak is the origin of the word Burak. So that's going to be a large part of what we're going to find out today. And also what's going to be interesting is that it suggests that, at least in Persian lands, Muhammad was viewed not as a prophet, but as a shaman, which is someone who conjures evil forces, you know, um, uh, which is not really the sort of Muhammad that traditionally he's viewed as. So it's, there's lots of hidden meanings in, in, in relation to the story of the Burak, as we'll see later. Okay, so um, the hagiography of Islam assures us that the prophet Muhammad ascended to heaven from Jerusalem on the mythical beast, Bur- the Burak. He crossed the seven spheres, exchanged greetings with the patriarchs, and beheld the glory of God. The Dinyark, Dinkart tells us that at the entreaties of Asho Zarathustra, transcendently elevated his consciousness to the realm of heaven, wherein he looked at the majesty of God. A similar journey was attributed to the virtuous Arda Viraf, who visited hell, purgatory, and heaven during his spiritual journey. So the Dinkart is the Acts of Religion. It's a 10th century compendium of Zoroastrian beliefs and customs during the, the time. Now, the gets a little bit more interesting when we look at the, the origin of the word Burak itself. So um, the suggestion is that it's either Sogdian, which is sort of in the greater Iran, or Patlavi, um, and it is likely, the, the likely candidate is Barak, that's the, where it comes from. Now, what is meant by a, a Barak? Um, it is a riding animal. Um, it can variations of it can refer to a rider as well. Okay, and 
and also has the meaning of horse and, and mount and so forth. Okay. So in addition to that, um, we have the following. Um, the most likely origin for a Turkic word of cultural significance is in Iranian. Um, in fact, we find that the Avastan bar to ride old Persian Asa bara rider horseman. So it's clear that that's where it comes from. So they've picked up the, the word, at least for this story, and, and perhaps also the story itself, as we'll see. So the Barak may represent the devil Ahriman. This is another demonic link, believe it or not. Um, so it should first be noted that Barak is Middle Persian, signifies no ordinary horse. Rather, it is the sobriquet for a fantastic mount, either the devil Ahriman, whom one of the mythical Persian kings, Ta-Morap, pursued and rode upon as his charger for 30 years, or else the fiery horse of the apocalypse, which will be seen by night and in the atmosphere conceived by the spiritual gods. So this is quite strange, really, for uh, the Islamic religion to have Muhammad uh, traveling to heaven on essentially what could be a demon called Afriman. So it seems like they've taken the word from um, the Persian and Zoroastrian culture. And with that, the concept of, um, you know, essentially a, a flying horse. Okay. Um, now, it also has connections in the Turkic culture to um, shamans. Um, so in later centuries, it took on meanings like um, hairy dog and, and so on, because of its link with, um, and also first man, which is... Um, a shamanic animal. Um, so it's kind of a strange one. Now, um, what about this um, demon, Afriman? His main goal, according to Zoroastrian mythology, is to fill the world with as much evil as he can, so it will destroy itself. So this is what Islam proposes as the, the Burak that Muhammad is on. So while it could be argued that Muhammad riding on the demon, Afriman suggests subduing this demon, it is still a very strange association. Pictures of Zoroaster typically portray him in white vestments, which are also worn by present-day Zoroastrian priests. It is not clear if Islam copies the wearing of white when on Hajj from Zoroastrianism. So that's that could be a link there. So I'm leaving that kind of 50-50 on that one. Zoroastrian, Zoroaster appears with a raised hand and thoughtfully lifted finger as if to make a point. Um, you'll probably recognize Ali Dawa there. I'm just playfully uh, noticing the similarity in pose there. Uh, um, he, uh, I mean, in, in, in all fairness, he likes grapes. So there is a connection between grapes and Zoroastrianism. So. <laughs> that is true. Um, so in Zoroastrianism, water and fire are agents of ritual purity. And the associated purification ceremonies are considered the basis of ritual life. In Zoroastrian cosmogony, water and fire are respectively the second and last primordial elements to have been created, and scripture considers fire to have its origin in the waters. Well, water and fire represented within the precinct of a fire temple. Now, the Zamzam's well name strongly suggests, as we saw in the last um, episode, that it is named after the Zoroastrian demon Zam. Zoroastrian rituals, according to Al-Tabari, were called Li Al-Zamzama, Zoroastrians usually pray in the presence of some form of fire, and the culminating rite of the principal act of worship constitutes a strengthening of the waters. 
Fire is considered a me medium through which spiritual insight and wisdom are gained, and water is considered the source of that wisdom. But fire and water are also hypostasized as the Yazatas, Atar, and Anahita, which worship hymns and litanies dedicated to them. So th these are two more Zoroastrian gods associated with fire and water. Um, now, it's interesting that um, uh, the Chinese source refers to the Abbasids as Heyi Dashi, which literally means black Tiyaye. So it's still a question mark as to why they were called the black Tiyaye. Uh, the obvious explanation would be they're wearing black. Does the, the color black have any significance? Um, let's come back to that in a second. But here are the, these two gods, at Atar and Anahita, which are, from a Christian point of view, are essentially demons. So the fire god Adur or Atar is on a coin of the Turk Shahi king, uh, Tigan Shah, 728 CE. The ultimate etymology of Atar, previously unknown, is now believed to be from the Indo-European uh, word fire, a uh, word for fire. This would make it related to Latin Atar, which means black. And it's interesting that the, the basses are referred to the black dashi. Could that be a link with Atar? However, um, it's unclear, but the Persian house of Karan dressed in green to symbolize the Mithraic god Mir. So maybe there is something in, in terms of the, the significance of the black that the Abbasids uh, wore. Um, now, in terms of Anahita, it's the name of an Iranian water goddess, i.e. demon, whose symbol is the lotus flower. If you look at the center of it, it reminds me very much of the, the black stone in the, in, in the Kaaba. Um, it was prior to the 4th century BC, conflated with Istar and with Venus or Aphrodite, also referred to as Ard Weiser, the Lady of the Waters in Zoroastrian text post 651. Um, so it's also called Ishtar, which is found in Iraq. Now, it's interesting here, this is a coin from uh, the Umayyad Caliphate uh, under Yassi I, uh, 680 to 683. You'll notice to the right, the fire altar with attendants and the crescent and star flanking the flames. Why were the Umayyad leaders so comfortable with having images of a polytheist religion on official coins? I don't know if either of you want to come in on this one. Yeah, Jay, that, that's uh, you know, yeah, the this department. Is, yeah. This is fascinating as you're bringing up not only the political symbol of the fire, I'm sorry, of the star in the crescent, which can be traced all the way back to the second century BC. Khosrau the first actually has that symbol on his coins. This is not. This is this is what later the Ottomans then take as the symbol for Islam itself. But if you're in in Persian area and these coins were all minted in what is today Iran and Iraq, we did this when we look at the coins. There is a picture of Khosrau on the left. There is the fire altar, suggesting therefore that these are incorporating these practices, which would then echo exactly what you're saying here. They had no problem doing this because they wanted to not only they were familiar with it, uh, but also they wanted to please the people that were there in that area. Wonderful. Yeah. All right, brother. So, we have about a minute or so. If you want okay. To continue now. So Zoroastrian priests are often depicted with veils since face veils were used to avoid contaminating the holy fire with breath or saliva at a fire temple. This is an 8th century Tang dynasty clay figure of a Sogdian man, possibly a Zoroastrian priest. And you'll remember that there are images of Muhammad in a very similar way. This is a 16th century Ottoman illustration depicting Muhammad at the Kaaba. Muhammad's face is veiled and appears with fire, which are both signs of a possible Zoroastrian influence 
The practice of veiling Muhammad was followed in the Islamic art since the 16th century. Now, it could be that this has um, entered the tradition via Sufism, which might have been influenced by Zoroastrianism. It may not have come in directly, but there does seem to be some form of link there. And if we just tie it all together then, so we have the water principle, Anahita or Aphrodite, connected with the Zamzam well. Um, we have the fire principle, potentially Atar, which means black. The Kaaba is decked in black. So perhaps that was considered a fire temple from the Zoroastrian point of view originally. And they're linked via the black stone, which represents Aphrodite, according to St. John of Damascus. So I think there might be something to this. Um, and so it's it could be that this site was used both by Muslims and by Zoroastrians in the early days, and both brought their own symbolism and meaning to the site. Um, but it does look like in early Islam, there was a, um, a lot of um, willingness to imbibe Zoroastrian ideas, which is a real contradiction of the idea of Islam being a monotheistic religion. So in summary, uh, Zoroastrianism massively influenced how Islam developed its prayer rituals and washing, its myths, its sunnah, even the well in Mecca is called a synonym for Zoroastrianism, i.e. Zamzam. So we'll come back to you in the studio. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I want us to really get ready for the next one. I think we will be talking about, if I recall, about uh, the uh, origin of the Aisha and Fatima uh, story, or at least maybe names, and how they are linked to Ishmael. Anything else, uh, Jay, you want to add? No, I'm, this is all fascinating because so, we know that when a, you have a book and a man in a place, you then need to have a backstory. You need to have a theology that supports it. They're looking right, left, and center. They're not, they didn't have to look very far. Their headquarters is in Baghdad. Uh, Kufa is where their theological center is. Who is all around them? The Zoroastrians all around them. Mel's hit on something here. It looks like they did a lot of borrowing. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mel. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, everyone. This is Al-Fadi over and out. God bless. Take care. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAinternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. Hello, everyone. This is Al-Fadi, and I'm hoping that you have enjoyed uh, the previous episodes that we have presented to you from this new series called Exposing the Myth. With us here, of course, remotely, our dear brother Mel, who have done amazing research and showed uh, how uh, Zoroastrianism have contributed to reshaping early Islam and many of its rituals and customs and even proper names uh, uh, of certain objects or certain features that are very important to Islam. Today, we're going to talk about something uh, at least, uh, you know, in the same theme, but maybe not tied to the previous one. It's about the question, was Aisha and Fatima borrowed from Jewish sources to link them with Ishmael? And with us here in the studio remotely to answer this question, our dear brother Mel. Mel, thank you again for this research, this fascinating material. And uh, hopefully you can help us now with the uh, link between Aisha, Fatima and Ishmael. Okay, so I, th I suppose the thing to say at the outset, this is um, like a, a white paper here. Um, there is a scholarly discussion around this question, which came first. It's a bit like the chicken and egg. Um, I'm convinced that based on the evidence that Aisha and Fatima were referred to in Jewish sources centuries before Islam took them over. Um, so 
I, I leave it to the audience to decide for themselves if you are persuaded by the evidence. So, according to the Sen, uh, Muhammad was married to Aisha and had a daughter called Fatima. The problem is we don't have any contemporary sources from the 7th century that testify, testifies to these being real living people. Um, an awful lot of the Hadiths depend on Aisha being a real person. Um, there's a huge number of, of Hadiths attributed to her. But if she's not real, then what, what status do those Hadiths have? Um, one objection is if people are going to fabricate stories about Muhammad because they are inventing a new religion, they're obviously going to fabricate stories that make Muhammad look good. And Jay, I'm sure you remember this line from David Wood back in 2020. Um, so let's remind ourselves where these tales were written. So, you know, they were written in Zoroastrian lands, as we, as we saw earlier. Um, however, as we already saw from the Chinese source Du Huan, who lived in Persian lands in the 750s, that the Zimzim, or Zoroastrians, practice incest, incest, and in this respect are the worst of all the barbarians. So if this is true, then it wouldn't be beyond imagination for a culture that thinks that this is acceptable to write also other re really weird tales about Aisha and so forth. It fits entirely in with the Zoroastrian outlook. Um, if this was the very culture that the Hadiths and the Sirah were written, then we needn't be too surprised at the depravity of their writings. The principle of embarrassment doesn't apply here, but rather the principle of self-justification, making up stories to justify contemporary amoral behaviour. That's what I would argue in relation to these. So where did the names Aisha and Fatima come from? If people are going to fabricate stories about Muhammad because they are inventing a new religion, they're obviously going to fabricate stories that make Muhammad look good. And how would these make Muhammad look good? By linking him with Ishmael. So I'm going to argue that ultimately the, the reference to Aisha and Fatima were about linking Muhammad to them. I'm sorry, linking Muhammad not just to them, but to ultimately to Ishmael. So the proposal is that the Targum Pseudo-Jonathan is a 4th century AD Jewish Targum that mentions Adisha, i.e. Aisha, and Fatima as the wives of Ishmael, thus proving, if the dating is correct, that this is another of countless harvestings of Jewish sources by Islam to build its own mythology. So the wider context is we've already seen hundreds and hundreds of examples of borrowings from Judaism, so this would be only one more. We don't find examples, that, to my knowledge, of Judaism borrowing from Islam. Why would it borrow from from a religion it considers to be false. The traffic is always one way. Now, the relevant passage found in the Targum can be broken down into its Hebrew text and pseudo-Jonathan components as follows. So first of all, it is a, a, a reiteration of Genesis 21, 21. He dwelt in Pharaoh, married an Egyptian whom his mother brought him. Then there is the expansion on that, which is the Jewish um, um, gathering of folklore around it. He first married Adisha, put her away, then married Fatima, whom, and then it dot, dot, dot. However, from the 4th century to the 9th century, variants of the name Adisha circulated, hence why in the 9th century, Jewish Midrash known as Perke de Rabbi Eliezer, we find the name Aisha in place of Adisha. It is clear that there was a progression from Adisha to Aisha. This name was then picked up and used in relation to the wife of Muhammad, who was viewed as the embodiment of Ishmael. So here is the text from um, Perke de Rabbi Eliezer. Ishmael sent for a wife from among the daughters of Moab, and Aisha was her name. So this is referring to Ishmael, 
who you know lived in Old Testament times. We're not talking about the seventh century here. Um, so, in terms of this, arguments for Targum Pseudo Johnson's antiquity include the presence of Jewish literary Aramaic, which necessitates use from the first to the second century sources, to which a fourth century Jewish uh, writers would have greater access to. So, what this means is that there's a type of Aramaic which is archaic, which comes from the first and second century. It's in that writing, which would suggest that it's 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 very old. Okay. The argument that the presence of JLA can only be found in Onkelos, which is written in 600 AD, has already been debunked since the finding of the first century uh, document, as, as it's called there, written in JLA. Flesher proposes that uh, Pseudo Johnson derives from a first century text in written JLA rather than the late Babylonians. In other words, the central argument against it being fourth century has been demolished by the fact that there are other text out there that come from before 600 AD that they could have uh, sourced. Flesher's thesis maintains that priests wrote proto-Ontolus in Jerusalem. The JLA they used also appears in 1st century Jerusalem, um, Osri inscriptions, common writings and the Bar Koshba letters. A literary language, it required a structure of support and an educational system for its dissemination. Uh, it appears until 135 AD in the extant literature. Now, all of this material is coming from Beverly Mortensen's book, The Priesthood in Targum Jonathan. Um, she is the four, um, what's the word, the, the, the most important scholar in, in this area. She, I think no one has done as much work on this uh, at Targum as her. So the case for why it is fourth century, this study shows that it differs from the Palestinian Targum tradition represented by Proto-PT in two ways. It is 2.8 times larger and it speaks to priests about themselves and maintaining the cult, while Proto-PT talks or speaks to ordinary individuals about their keeping the Torah. Now, a focus on the Jewish priesthood and temple practices only makes sense in the context of a realistic prospect of rebuilding the temple, of which there hasn't been any since the occupation of the Temple Mount by the Arabs since the 7th century. So it would mean that it would have to be from an earlier period. She says that I consider that the writer is a priest and that he writes exclusively for priests. With this as the primary consideration, we turn to the matter of dating. When in the time after the completion of the Torah would a writer embark upon an ambitious translation of the Hebrew Pentateuch that addresses an audience of priests? The question concerns opportunity, motivation and expectation. She says that we make this selection based on the rationale for writing a massive work directed at temple priests. Why would anyone undertake such an effort if he had no hope of a temple? Of the two eras, only one offers such a hope. The 4th century CE, a short-lived expectation for rebuilding the temple arose during the reign of Emperor Julian, who reigned from 361 to 363 AD. He wrote a letter promising such a feat shortly before his death. Word of his intention had likely circulated since the beginning of his reign. So she argues that this is really the only time that it made sense to write this targum. This was the opportunity that was given to them to rebuild the temple. At this time, the temple had been destroyed for 291 years. The new emperor, rumour has it, talks of rebuilding the temple. Even though his plan satisfies a grudge against the Christians, his action functions as a real boon for, for Jews and their cult. The author, in preparation for the temple's readiness, applies his efforts to ensure that an eager and well-prepared priesthood stands ready to conduct all the ancient rituals 
Uh, Julian becomes emperor of the Roman Empire in 361. He cares little for Christians, so he exhorts the Jewish leaders to return to their ancient sacrificial worship. They protest that they must have a temple according to their law in Jerusalem. He gives them money to do just that. The pagans help them, for building the temple will disqualify Jesus' prophecy that the temple will fall. So in conclusion, the Targum Sutta Johnson predates Islam's expansion of the story. PRE was written at a time when Islam was beginning to write its own origin story in the form of Ibn Hisham. However, as it was a compendium of early traditions, we are still on solid ground in asserting it came before the sin. So I'm very persuaded uh, by um, Beverly's um, argument, and she goes into great detail in the Targum in terms of pointing out how much it is really a priestly text for priests. So we'll hand it back to you. Yep. Thank you so much. And uh, uh, we really appreciate uh, this research. And I'm hoping that we can connect back again and we either expand on this or add more to it. Uh, Jay, any last word? No, I like this. This is fascinating because it is also uh, the pseudo Jonathan uh, Targum of John Perry Ben Michael. That also you get the story of uh, the, the two sons of Adam and the, the, right. the bird. Until you can see these are all being pulled out, they're introduced into the Quran. In this case, not in the Quran, but in this case, it's in the traditions to give some type of body to these two, the, the right. wives and the daughter of Muhammad. Wonderful. Thank you so much to both of you. Thank you, everyone. And this is Al Fadi. Over and out. God bless. Take care. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.